Yeah, that's hard. Like, I feel like uh, there's definitely some tricky stuff out there, but I've, that's one thing with mountain biking. I've always been, I've always kind of held out hope that like a lot of these guys seem to be pretty natural and, and it's been pretty untainted for a long time, it seems, but I guess we're discovering that it's not. What up, party people? We've got another fun one for y'all today. Friend of the pod, Carson Beckett, joined us to break down the latest happenings in the world of bike racing. We talk tandem life at Gravel Worlds, doping scandals in both the road and off-road scene, and Carson gives us a little bit of insight from his recent trip to race Swiss Epic. If you have any questions or feedback for the show, find us on the Instagram airwaves and drop into our DMs so we can get you queued up for the next show. IG handles are Scott McGill Jr., Dylan Johnson, and Adam Saban 6. All right, let's get this Bonk Bros party started. And go. Should I start talking about? Should I start talking about? Why don't we introduce our guest first? Yeah, yeah. Let's get our guest guest introduced here. And and before we even do that, I'm going to apologize to you guys and the listeners. I have this weird thing going on with my tongue called lie bumps so if i if i'm talking with a lisp at all it's because my tongue like literally burns like crazy yeah it's weird i had allergic reaction to a anti-inflammatory medicine that i was taking last week so not cool but hey so we've got it we've got a guest of the show today carson beckett pro mountain biker just got back from swiss epic which we'll hear all about um carson you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself Sure. Thanks, man. Uh, happy to be on. I uh, currently residing in Brevard, North Carolina, like Dylan. Um, was a couple years under him, but went went to Brevard College. Um, similar, yeah. like kind of degree path and everything, and in the coaching cycling combo world. And um, yeah, I just no better place to be, and, and stuck around here in Brevard, North Carolina. So. Uh, helping run uh, my race program dirt camp racing which has got a, a couple little things going on a little devo action going on with that and um and racing bikes and living in north carolina so yeah dude this is like the uh, college reunion here <laughs> Sweet scott man. carson and i all all went to all went to college together so um yeah also, it seems like it seems like the it seems like every other pro racer is also a cycling coach, huh? Yeah, it's the only way to survive there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Carson, I I, uh, I rode with one of your teammates at Leadville for quite a while. Um, Eli, oh, cool. Uh, I I didn't get his name. I just know that he was wearing the Dirt Camp jersey. We he had, had longer uh, hair. Okay, that was probably Thor. We had Thor. Eli yeah, yeah, that sounds right. And Thor, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was fun. Cool. Yeah, he's um he's a cool guy. He's like marketing director or something for Storyteller Overland. So they a big sponsor. They can do like all the Mercedes chassis van conversions basically. Whoa. Sick. Okay. Sweet. All right, so I know Dylan's dying to tell us about some <laughs> stuff that went down at Gravel Worlds. I'm dying to hear about it. All right. Let's, let's start shit. there, Dylan. Yeah, I well it's just I think that everybody learned from uh SBT that that if they make you know if if they 
stir up a bunch of drama, uh, particularly Pete, probably, right? If they stir up a bunch of drama about these gravel races, it seems like it kind of bit them in the ass. At least it did Pete, right? Like he even admitted that he was wrong in that Vela News article. And it's like, he was like, yeah, they just figured out, you know, they figured out a different tactic that I didn't think about. Um, so I guess, I guess what's interesting about gravel worlds is, uh, um, Adam Roberge is the men's winner and the way in which he won is, uh, I read, uh, John Bolsterman who got, who's been the two time defending champion got second this year. What he said was that Adam skipped the last aid station and he, and John stayed back to fill up water and, and basically like, like John lost the race by 14 seconds, like probably roughly amount, the amount of time that it took him to fill up his bottles, maybe even a little bit less time than it took him to fill up his bottles. And he said like the last 18 miles, he had Adam in his sights, but he couldn't catch him. Basically, I, I don't know how the race would have played out had they just came in for a sprint finish, which is what happened last year. Um, you know, I, Adam's a good sprinter, but John's also seems to be a good sprinter as well. I, I don't know how it would have played out, but the race was won because Adam skipped an aid station. Now, was he was he like pissed about this, John? He... Or is he so just like explaining to, what's going on? Right. So so it's hard to tell what his real feelings are because he certainly didn't make it seem like he was pissed in his post about it, right? And I think I think he probably just like saw what Pete did the week before um and was like, Oh, I don't you know, uh I don't want people getting uh upset at me on social media because I'm you know I'm trying to keep the rules of gravel the way they are. And, and people seem to like the way Keegan did it better. Um, so didn't seem like he was pissed about it on social media, but I guess, I guess the question now is like, is, is the spirit of gravel fully dead at this point? Now that people are just like skipping aid stations is, is like completely a cool thing to do. The spirit so, of gravel. All right. So, so okay, so Carson and Dylan, I don't know, Scott, this might not apply to you as much from the roadside, but for for mountain biking, like isn't one of the things that you always do before the start of a race is figure out your nutrition plan? Like mm-hmm. how many bottles you're gonna start with, you're gonna run a pack or not, how many gels you're gonna put in your pocket, where are you gonna stop, if you're gonna stop, like all that stuff goes through your mind, right? It's not just like a given, like, hey, we're gonna stop at this aid, this aid, this aid. Like as as mountain bikers, like that's just what we do right mm-hmm. so i don't know like yeah. is, is maybe the spirit of gravel just kind of changing like it's just it's evolving it's turning into more mountain biking or something um i mean i think that's like a baller move to like if you can stay away for 20 miles after skipping the last aid station i don't know if maybe adam didn't need to stop yeah. but if that was like a if it was like a split second decision like hey do I stop? Do I not stop? Like if he wasn't sure and he just decided to blow through it in order to get a gap, like I think that's pretty badass. Well, did he like he yeah. didn't tell him that he's stopping, right? I I don't know what the communication was. Like, shouldn't you guys just? If, how many guys were in the group? A couple, two, three. Well, I think there I think there was at least I think it was at least three because I think it was at least Adam, John, and Pete Stetna. I could be wrong about that, but in the tandem. 
And the tandem. Yeah, the tandem, the tandem got third. <laughs> the tandem got third, by the way. Yeah. And apparently they're like the road world championships for tan or road world champions for tandem got third at Gravel World. Holy shit. That's cool. Yeah. I mean to me, so like it comes down to there's like an A and a B plan. Like if A option is you have the ability to have team support, then you run, you know, you run light, you go you go low profile and like you have your team out there to support you. If not, if it's the B plan, which is no team support, it's, you know, race provided only, then you are like, okay, well you either, you have to weigh the options. Then at that point, it's like, I can run light stop at AIDS or run a little heavier and I've got everything I need and I'm good. So it's like, yeah. I don't know why there's so much beef around that to me is like, you've got two situations so you just like you gotta pick one and like right. i mean say you're coming up to the feed you should be looking at the other guys like water bottles and see how full yeah. they are and like reach <laughs> over like feel feel how heavy his camelback is or whatever to see <laughs> if he's gonna stop or just like ask him like hey you're gonna stop if he lied to him and said yeah i'm stopping and then blew through i mean then you can have some beef but if you didn't ask him then you got nothing <laughs> wrong like he didn't do anything wrong sure yeah, and to your to your point like if he can stay away for the last 20 miles, like kind of running on E then like kudos to the, to that guy. I mean, you, you run the risk. It's like, I'm not going to stop and hopefully I don't blow up. Then I guess like Roberge posted that he was more roasted after that race than like any race he'd ever done. So like he was like completely emptied by the end. Yeah. So it could have gone the other way where he just like completely, blew up sure. right now now if john would have won because roberge blew up with three miles to go because he didn't have anything left in his bottles would he have like felt bad for adam like no of course not like that was an, a risk that adam took yeah. sure yeah yeah i mean like correct me if i'm wrong here but i feel like so mountain endurance mountain bike racing has been going on for way longer than gravel and you have to occasionally you have to stop at aid stations in endurance mountain bike racing, just like you do in gravel racing. And I feel like there's never been this sort of beef. And, and I don't, I don't necessarily know why that is maybe because there's more pack dynamics in gravel racing, um, versus, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's part of it. You know, like in mountain biking, it's usually thinned out pretty good that you, you don't really often know what your competitors are doing or how quickly they're going sure. through aid stations and stuff. Whereas like, you know, in this case, and like going back to SBT last week, like, there was a big front or big chase group that all came together. And then like, clearly it's split at the aid station. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so like that's probably part of it, but you know, I don't know. I think it's just like a converging of different backgrounds, you know, in the road, you've always had, uh, you know, support teams in the feed zones who are like giving you bottle hand ups, or you've had teammates who are bringing you bottles and things like that. So like in road racing, a lot of times it doesn't come down to like, uh, you know, a race of attrition and like who has an, you know, enough supplies to get them through the race. Um, and then you've got mountain biking, which a lot of times like, you know, someone like Keegan, who's done the white rim FKT, which is like a hundred percent self-supported, you know, like he's kind of used to doing that. So you've kind of got these two different backgrounds converging mm -hmm. and gravels just always been this like sort of wild, wild west, like anything goes, mm -hmm. And now I think it, guys are just getting outsmarted. Like, in, in there's like a lot more tactics involved now, and I think people are just a little bit jaded from that. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Also, I, you know, uh, for some reason, I have to talk about arrow bars every <laughs> single time we have this podcast, but arrow bars are legal at Gravel Worlds, and both Adam Roberge and John didn't use arrow bars. Both of them are guys who have used arrow bars in the past. I almost commented on John's post, like, I know something that could have gotten you 14 seconds, <laughs> um, but I didn't do that. <laughs> Um, so, so actually, so Dylan, so I was, I went back and just now read, reread his post. So he actually had caught Adam two miles after the aid station, but then oh, he really? missed a Then he missed a turn. Oh, okay. so he must've been like on Adam's wheel and, or it, he must've been on the front and then missed a turn, but Adam caught it or something. And then it says that he went out. Uh, 20 seconds or got a 20 second gap there and then went and stayed away for the last 18 miles. So Dang. there was the aid station dilemma and a missed turn there. Dude, that's uh, that's like double anti spirit of gravel by Adam, like not waiting <laughs> at the aid station and then not waiting when your competitor misses a turn. <laughs> I'm reading the post. Uh, I don't think he cares about the aid station. Yeah, it Mostly didn't sound like he cared. Turn. Yeah, sure. Dude, I mean, Adam hasn't cared about the Spirit of Gravel from day one. Like, he was breaking the Spirit of Gravel rules from his first gravel race. So he was he's basically just been trying to win bike races the whole time. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I so so Dylan, so as far as like the 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 route following or whatever, do you know is like Gravel Worlds one of the races where they don't mark any parts of the course and you have to run it on your GPS? Um, yeah, I mean, more and more gravel races are going that direction, so it wouldn't surprise me if Gravel Worlds is one of those. I honestly don't know. Um, okay. Yeah, the, the, the guy who puts on Gravel Worlds is a super nice guy. I've met him, like, he's, he's offered to put me up if I ever want to come to the, come to the race and, um, and all of that. Uh, it looks like a cool event. I want to do it. It's just always at such like a busy time of the year. Um, there's so there's so many other races to do. Well, what were you doing last weekend? What do you mean? Why didn't you do it? I was recovering from life. <laughs> a week later, <laughs> didn't Adam do yeah, that? I mean, and he won it. Sure, and, yeah, Andy did. did steamboat. Andy did steamboat, uh, and he had such a bad day. He's a bitch right now. <laughs> dude but but that's the thing that like the first half of the season i totally like that if this was the first half of the season i would have been like oh yeah let me go do uh gravel worlds and that's like totally what bit me in the ass like i just raced way too much and like my that's not in the spirit of gravel you should just be <laughs> racing all the time is that part of the spirit of maybe gravel? you get better at racing all the time if you just raced all the time Dude, I think the spirit of gravel is just you have to you have to wait at the aid station until everybody has has their bottle completely full and grab and then, their snacks and then wait an extra thirty seconds if anyone just like wants to catch their breath and then you can continue and then you got to take a bunch of pictures drinking an IPA and then dump it out in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly, dude. What do you so? So I was going to say, like, Gravel Worlds looks like a super cool event, and it's put on really well. But what do you guys think of the name Gravel Worlds? Is that not a little bit, like, self-serving? 
Well, they probably came up with it before, like, this was a thing. They did. Right? They did, yeah. So there's, sure. like, I'll just start. I mean, who claims the world championships of any event? Somebody's just got to, like, right. start it, right? Yeah, I mean, very true, very true. And it could have caught on and actually been, like, a huge, huge world event. But I would argue that, like, at this point, I mean, he's not even pulling the fastest riders in the U.S. to his – to his event he you should know, change Keegan. the name to like what is it in nebraska or something yeah. yeah he should change it to like gravel worlds of nebraska or something like that mm-hmm. it makes it like less you know <laughs> sure so like so like they know it's a joke like yeah it's, it's so, tongue in so cheek. i think i think the this is from what i've heard i i think the name actually comes from like a spinoff of like the wednesday worlds group ride okay yeah yeah you know so it's kind of just like you know collectively getting all the local fast guys together and doing a race yeah. So I don't think it ever meant to be like the world championships. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I can respect that for sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see like if the UCI does get involved pretty soon. I feel like we could be looking at like some actual worlds, some actual World Cups or something funky. Yeah. Well, we were talking about this on an earlier podcast, how the the – you know, UCI gravel races that have been in the U.S. this year have that like hardly anyone has even attended them. Yeah, um, it's like U.S. U.S. One, gravel one was canceled are, because there wasn't going to be enough attendance. Yeah, I mean they're so uninterested in anything having to do with the UCI, um, which I don't know. There's there's good and bad to that. Yeah, and but I think that part of that is like the re- rebellious nature of like American cycling. Mm-hmm. versus like internationally like i don't know maybe their maybe their international events will do better i haven't i haven't kept track of it but um which if they do like eventually a lot of our you know participants are going to gravitate towards their events yeah but if it's a bust altogether then it's just a bust yeah before we move on from Gravel Worlds, I just wanted to say Lauren DeCrescenzo won Gravel Worlds, and I think at this point it'd probably be safe to say that Lauren DeCrescenzo is like the female version of Keegan as far as her dominance. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's like any gravel race that she shows up to, it, you'd, you'd be foolish not to put your money on her if you were betting. Is she not part of the Grand Prix, the Lifetime Grand Prix? So she, so she's not part of the grant. So this is the way that she's not like Keegan, right? She's like Keegan in her dominance. She's not like Keegan in her mountain bike skills or lack thereof. Uh, she didn't want to be part of the Grand Prix because she doesn't want to do mountain bike races. And I think that if there's anything that's her, an Achilles heel for her in gravel racing, it's her technical skills. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't know. I like I would like to see her in it but it's also it's kind of cool that she's not in a way but also it's like come on like the the mountain bike race I, she was here in Brevard training one time and we rode together um and she is insanely fit you know you can just tell like there's a different she's rides differently um and we were talking about that and it's like well I get that but like the mountain bike races you could do them on a gravel bike yeah, like they're, super, they're not that they're, demanding. They're super tame. I mean, every all all three of them, all three of them are like, if you wanted to, you could do them on a gravel bike. I don't know if that would yeah. be the fastest bike, but it's like, 
it wouldn't even necessarily be an issue if you had to do the entire series on one bike. For sure. Which would be, I mean, either I would like to either see like a, like a wider variety of races in the future as a spectator. Like I would like to see either more technical races become involved or something like that where they make it like uh, they standardize it a bit. Like you have the choice of one frame that you can for use the whole all year. season. Now, what if, what if you, what if you, what if you crack it. your frame though? You got to get the That's exact right. one. Okay. <laughs> but you can't, um, that you can't shit back together. You can't spectate <laughs> these races anymore. Which mm-hmm. it'll be interesting now to see because we do have you guys have one coming up that's like fairly different from the rest. Um, the Shaquamagon or whatever, however you say that one. Uh, I would say that one's <laughs> probably the like outlier of the season to me. How so? Um, like distance and demand, like it's, sure. what is it? Like a 40 mile point to point. Yeah. Winning, so, I was looking at the winning race times. They're like two hours and 10 minutes, two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. That'll yeah, be kind of interesting. On a dry year, I think Payson went two Oh one. I don't wow. know if two hours has ever been broken, but so that's like 20 miles an hour. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I ordered a thirty-eight tooth chain ring, so I heard Big that dog. you need it. You need it. You need it for that course. Dude, so if that's a point to point, that sounds like such a pain in the ass. Forty mile, then you're forty miles away from your car. Yeah, well, you only race for two hours. You need to get in like three more hours of riding in order to even call it a ride. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the, the last yeah. day. The last day of Portugal was a point-to-point time trial, and it was like 5K <laughs> was the start and the finish, and it was like still kind of a pain in the ass. Like you had to like figure out logistics <laughs> and shit, and this is 40 miles. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean it's it's 40 miles of like meandering terrain though, so I think it's I think it's only like 10 or 12 miles from the start to finish. So do you I'm, have to I'm ride? Just gonna... Well, you just just park your car at the finish and then just ride for your warm up back to the start. I'll probably do the opposite. I'll 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 probably ride an extra two hours after the race just to get in a little bit of volume back to my car. Or that. Or we're both gonna be there. We could have yeah. one car at the start, one car at the finish. Yeah. I might um, show up for that one. We'll see. Oh okay. dang. Yeah. yeah does that mean I'm starting in the back though? Is uh, it in front? I don't know. No, there there's like a three mile neutral rollout on the pavement. Uh, that's like it's like not neutral enough that you can like move your way up through the group sure yeah um yeah we'll definitely be talking more about that race but um i think we got to talk about it's a bad week for uh for dopers um specifically talking about nairo quintana got popped and matthias or uh matthias flukinger got popped yeah yeah. Yeah. He's got a brother. Um but uh I guess I was I was a little bit surprised at Nairo just because his results haven't been there for a while. So, I don't know. You it's not like he's getting some crazy results out of nowhere and you're like, "Oh, that looks suspicious." Um uh Mateus, I was I was kind of like that makes a little bit more sense because he's been a top 10 guy 
almost his entire career. And then in his thirties, he starts winning, winning world cups. I don't know. What did you guys think about that? What do you go pause for? Matthias. Uh, I'm going to have to look it up. It was, uh, it I have it right here. Z- uh, Z- Zeranol or Zeranol. It's, um, uh, Vela News says it's widely used to accelerate growth in livestock. Oh, it's yeah, on the water prohibited list, and it's uh, it's considered an anabolic agent. So, not looking very good for him. And do you know if it um, was um, out of competition or in competition? The test. Um, good question. It said that um, I know it was back in June. Yeah. Hmm. Back to the Swiss Championships in June is when the discovery was. Huh. From the sample and yeah that's hard like i feel like uh there's definitely some tricky stuff out there but if that's one thing with mountain biking i've always been i've always kind of held out hope that like a lot of these guys seem to be pretty natural and, and it's been pretty untainted for a long time it seems but i guess we're discovering that it's not um and it's kind of a bummer just from a mountain biker side of things because I always that was kind of like always some of my pride about this this side of the sport. And yeah. I mean, he's been like vice champion to Nino so much, so it's gotta be Sure. I don't wanna draw lines, but like that's gotta be hard on him. Yeah, I guess it does it, I I I agree with you. It seemed it seemed like it was less prevalent in mountain biking. Um, I don't know necessarily what the reason for that was, um, but again, it's just like when somebody makes a sudden, you know, breakthrough when they're in their thirties, it's got to be a red flag. In my, you know, like yeah. You're, if you're making breakthroughs in fitness, it's probably in your early to mid 20s, not in your 30s. Yeah, it's it's just a big bummer when the only time mountain biking makes headlines in ESPN is when someone gets popped for doping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Like it just sucks for our sport. And it's hard too because now. I mean, now you just can't, like, you can't backdate and you can't, like, trust any previous results or whatever. Like, it's kind of just... Right. There's an unknown question mark, basically, over all of his career now, which, like, sucks. But, I mean, that's that's what you accept once you step into that. Yeah, same with um, a, while, uh, a couple months ago. Uh, who's that cyclocross guy that got popped? Um Oh yeah. Tune arts. Tune arts. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I don't know. Same thing. I, I guess it raises the question. I'd be interested to see what you guys think on this. How prevalent do you think in 2022 doping is in pro cycling? Cause a lot of people have different opinions on this. Some people are like, Oh, they're all doping. You know, they're just finding different ways of hiding it or, you know, they're ahead of the curve. They're ahead of testing, whatever. And some people are like, it's it's a totally different sport than it was in the late 90s and early 2000s. In in Portugal, there was a team who'd won the race the previous five years. I don't know if I said this last week or not, but 
they couldn't start because only three of their riders weren't suspended. Mm. But none of them went positive. They got Mm. raided by the police and they had like a, like they were caught with, they said medications, which I don't know exactly what that means, but yeah. So in Portugal, it seems like it's still a thing, but I think it's, um, I don't know. It seems like it's isolated to certain areas from my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think I think it's a blend of both. Like I think it is out there, but I also think that it's like some of these teams are probably just finding kind of advanced ways to improve performance before they're really like decided to be. I guess you know, banned or natural. Yeah, that's like with tramadol, like what Nairo went pause for. It, it wasn't banned until 2020 or 2019. And it was like, mm-hmm. uh, from what I've heard, it was huge in the Peloton, but it makes you like super drowsy. It's a painkiller, but it makes you drowsy. So then like people thought that was like causing crashes because people were like basically falling asleep while they were riding. Or they're just like so, hammering the caffeine yeah. and like pumping the tramadol in. And did someone like, else talk or did someone else get popped for that? This this summer because I remember you telling us about that like I don't know a couple couple months ago. I don't remember maybe, hmm. but so it is it is banned now though. It's banned, but for some reason he doesn't. There's some reason like he doesn't have a suspension. Like he could have started okay. the Vuelta, but he decided hmm. not to start because of like the controversy. But so his gotcha. results are are d- like what do you call it, removed from the Tour de France. Mm-hmm. But he's not banned. He could he can compete. Yeah. Which is kind of weird. I don't know why. I forget the reasoning, like the wording of the rule for Tramadol. But, yeah. And it, I, I think it was he had, you have to get blood samples for Tramadol. Hmm. You can't test it in your piss. I mean, what do you guys think it would take to just to, to get – Banned substances completely eliminated from pro cycling. Like, would it be, would it take like a no tolerance policy? Like, you get popped for anything, you're out. Or is that too harsh? Um, well, then, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think it, it it would have to the no tolerance policy. It would have to depend on how strong the evidence is. Like, you would have to definitely be sure that they took something knowingly uh, banned, right? Sure. And and then I'll be honest, I'm totally on board with no tolerance. Like you can't race again if the evidence is strong. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, like you wouldn't want it to be like someone you know ate a batch of yogurt that had some you know weird antibiotics in it from the cow, and you know they sure. got popped because of that. Like wh- when I raced in in uh, China for cyclocross a couple of years ago, um, none of the euros would eat the the meats there. Because they were afraid of what chemicals might have been in the, like in the food or something, which like we didn't huh. care. We were like, you know, it's not whatever. We got yeah. chemicals in our food back home too, but um, yeah, they were like superstitious <laughs> right. about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's so it's certainly harder to dope now than it was in the late '90s, early 2000s because of the biological passport. But I've heard people theorize about how you could potentially get around the biological passport. Uh, one theory is that, and, and this is also a theory as to why so many young riders are dominating the sport right now, is that 
you know, the biological passport is looking at your blood markers over the course of a season. Um, and there's people suggesting that if you started doping from a young age and, and, and I want to preface this, I'm not any sort of doping expert. Um, this is just like (laughs) conspiracy theories that I've heard. If you start doping from a young age and you, and you maybe like micro, you know, I don't know, microdose EPO, like your entire career, uh, you could get past the biological passport there. There's also people suggesting that, you know, these teams are constantly doing these altitude camps and the science for whether or not high altitude training is actually beneficial for sea level performance is, is mixed at best. And I would say it's not very strong evidence and an altitude camp is not cheap. Um, and basically, or easy or or, (laughs) yeah, it's like, it's, it's a huge logistical nightmare and, and all of this, um, and what, the, what they're saying is that when you go to altitude, you can re- you record that on your biological passport. And then when you your blood markers change, you say, that's because I was at altitude. But it could be because you were on something. Um, and that that's like another way that they're potentially getting around this. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not any sort of doping expert. To be honest, I haven't even looked into doping that much because I don't plan on doping. Um, so could be talking out of, out of my ass right now, but that, that's, that's just some of the, the theories that I've heard about how teams could be potentially getting around this. Huh. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, you know, what, um, I mean, when you see an athlete like Tom Pitcock, for example, it's like, you've got some of those characters that are head and shoulders above others and that can cross disciplines and just like dominate. And it's like, you know, you hope that they are natural. It's, or I guess clean, I guess I would say. Sure. I mean, I'm sure everybody at that level, they've got such high level doctors and team staff that are, you know, trying to basically get every little percent out of them you can, but it's like, um, it's, it's just tough. Like you want to hope that the, you were seeing just a great generation and not like some behind the scenes trickery. So, yeah. Yeah. The problem is somebody has to be the best, right? So like <laughs> yeah, the best is right. always accused, but like somebody's got to be the best. Yeah. I was just going to say, so, you, you know, you just mentioned Tom Pidcock and I mean, there's like, you know, Vanderpool, uh, Wild fan art, um, you know, these names like they're dominating and they're they're dominating in multiple disciplines, and what they're doing is super impressive, and it almost seems superhuman at times. I'll be honest, what raises and 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 I'm you know I'm not saying that those guys are clean or dirty or anything, but I would say that what raises more red flags to me is when there's somebody who goes from mid pack to winning. And there, I'm like, I'm sort of referring to like, uh, Flukinger, <laughs> like he wasn't mid pack, but you, you see what I'm saying? Like he was a top 10 guy and all of a sudden he, you know, wins the, the world cup overall and he's in his thirties and you're like, where did that come from? You know? Um, I think that, I think that raises more red flags when somebody 
somebody has some sort of like breakthrough late in their career yeah especially um, in a dis- discipline like cross-country mountain biking you know it'd be different if he like switched over to endurance mountain biking but yeah i mean to still have that firepower sure. at 33 34 yeah yeah definitely um, um so should we move on from doping sure do you guys want to add anything to the doping discussion no doping sucks don't do it kids <laughs> right um i have what i have up next is that uh 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 dan bigham broke the broke the hour record and i don't know if anyone else on this podcast cares about that because none of us didn't even know that that happened <laughs> exactly that's what i'm gonna say is that i, I knew it happened <laughs> but when um like whenever there else there's been an hour record, it seems like it's been in the news a lot more than it has this time. Yeah, I don't know. Um, like even I, when Dowsett went for it, it was like a month of like yeah. articles leading up to it, and like he didn't even he, he didn't even get it. I, I think Dowsett's <laughs> a little bit better at press. Like he's got a YouTube channel and everything, and, and oh I yeah, think he's got a yeah. little. Uh, he's got a bigger following. I so you know. I'm not a track cyclist. None of us are track cyclists, but I will say this is the kind of thing that I love to see in bike racing. And I explained this to Jeremiah Bishop when we were talking about aero bars, because Jeremiah Bishop is like the OG for using aero bars for off-road events, whether they be mountain bike events or I don't know when then when then when gravel came along he switched his stance and now he's anti aero bar and we had a discussion about that um, you can go and listen to it but what I told him is is uh, this relates to aero bars but it also relates to these sort of records being broken or just any some anytime somebody wins a bike race in an unconventional way I love seeing when somebody who's not this most of the time in bike racing the strongest person wins the race. That, that's what happens most of the time. And that that's fine. I'm, I'm, you know, I like to see the strongest person win. That's cool to see. But every once in a while, it's not the strongest person who wins. It's the smartest person. It's the person that outsmarted the rest of their competition. And it only happens every once in a while. And when it happens, I get so excited. That's what I love to see. Like perfect example is when and and we've argued about whether this was because of the dropper post or not. But when Mahorich won Milan San Remo with the dropper post, like he's out, he's thinking outside the box. He's outsmarting his competition. Dan Bigham, and and I don't think he would mind me saying this, is not at the caliber of like uh, Campenertz or Alex Dowsett. Or any of these top time trial, like, world tour guys. He doesn't put out the same amount of power. Like, I was listening to a podcast where he was talking about for this hour record, like, he's talking about putting out 340 or 350 watts. There's amateurs that can do that. So how so how how was he able to break the hour record? It's because he's so damn geeky about aerodynamics that he figured out how to go that fast putting out that little amount of power. And I, and I freaking love that. But, but it's how, so cool. How did me. he do that? I mean, what, what were his tricks? He's, he's more aerodynamic. I mean, his tricks is like, is endless. Like 
from the helmet, the skin suit, the bike, the chain, the tires, like everything. There's nothing he doesn't think about. He thought about it all. Um, and he made his equipment as fast as it could possibly be. And he made his position as fast as it could possibly be. And he probably did like 350 or 360 watts for an hour, which is totally something that an amateur could do, uh, like a very high level amateur. And he, and he has covered more distance in the hour than anyone ever has. And that's, that's awesome. Did he, did he do any like special, like, uh, like mobility stuff to like get his position even better, more fine tuned or anything that you know of? I'm sure he did loads of shit. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I don't know what he does specifically to get into that super aerodynamic position, but it's not just about having, you know, being super low. It's also about like getting your, your, um, shoulders super narrow. So like the entire hour, he's like hunching his shoulders because the difference between having your shoulders wide and your shoulders narrow in an hour record could be, I don't know, 10 Watts, 15 Watts. Right. So he's like he's like on his limit for the entire hour and he's hunching his shoulders for the entire hour. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And, I, and I think kind of what you're alluding to is like you you love to see when someone gets every single bit of potential out of themselves. Yeah, that too. Or I mean, potential out of themselves or like there's there there's a certain way that bike racing is done. And then somebody thinks outside of that box and they end up getting rewarded because of it. You know what I'm saying? Um, like, you know, there, there's, there's numerous examples of it and it could be equipment I mean, that, related. That's how, could, that's how aero bars were invented. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Like yeah. Greg LeMond winning, uh, winning the tour in, I don't know, the eighties or whatever. Um, I mean, he has aero bars to thank for that, <laughs> but like at, he was, like he thought outside the box and was like, "How do I go faster in this time trial?" Um, yeah, I think it's super cool. Uh, I know, I know, not everyone agrees with me. Some people would just like to always see the the strongest person in the race win. But yeah, and he's also not a world tour rider, so mm-hmm. he might have had a better ability to prepare specifically for that rather than like you know. Sure. Dalsa can commit a month or two to like specific preparation, but this guy can. Yeah, yeah. who is this guy? He, he he rides for I think he rides for a continental team in the UK, but he's he works for he Ineos. Works, he works for Ineos as an aerodynamic, like you know he's like their aerodynamic expert, and um, because he he had like a track team where they did the same thing. Like none of them are elite, like. He took like a group of non-elite level track cyclists and and you know took him to track world cups and was like crushing it um, because they thought outside the box and they did things better whether it was because of aerodynamics or like their tactics in the four K pursuit or whatever. Um, that was like when when Felt came out with that left side drivetrain. That was kind of cool. Yeah, I I think they determined that that wasn't actually faster no but like it's still like it's you know it's unique like they're sure doing something different yeah yeah ashton ashton lambie was on that team um when he broke the uh 4k pursuit record
So yeah. Swiss Epic. Yeah, let's talk no, about, let's talk a, about real, a real epic. race. On <laughs> 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 this gravel bullshit. <laughs> yeah, so Carson, uh, so tell us, um, how did this Swiss Epic opportunity come about for you? Because from what I saw, it, it wasn't something that was on your radar until like pretty last minute. Yeah, it um, it was very last minute. I had kind of just gotten back from a block of like, uh, let's see, like nationals, snowshoe world cup. And I was kind of just going to settle in to some training here in Rivard and enjoy it and got a couple weeks in. And I was taking uh Sarah Hill to the airport. She's uh races for live factory. I guess you consider it live factory team. And she, I was actually flying her, taking her to the airport so she could fly the steamboat. And I was just talking about her calendar and races she had done. And I was like, yeah, you know, Swiss Epic's kind of like one of those bucket list items for me. And um, she was like, oh, it's funny you say that. I have a friend who like just had his partner had to drop out and like the race starts Tuesday. And she kind of jokingly was like, if you can get over there by, this was Friday. She was like, if you can get over there by like Sunday, then, you know, like Sunday, Monday, then you could race. It's already like all taken care of anyway. He just needs a partner. And I kind of like shrugged it off. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I like, got to thinking about it and talking with the team and some people. And um, slowly it snowballed and just like all the pieces came together. There was like zero, there was zero kind of limitations or things that got in the way. It just like sort of happened. And I was like, I guess I'm going to go do this. <laughs> and uh, I'm not a very last minute guy. Like I like to, you know, if I've got a race planned, I like to have, some preparation and the logistics dialed and know what I'm doing before I go, but figured it was a good growing opportunity. And I had no idea who I was meeting, like who I was going to race with all week. I just figured like, I'll go over there and, and get the experience. And, um, you know, I would love to go back and race it from a UCI standpoint, but I figured this would just be an opportunity to just like go put in mileage and, and see the event for the first time. So, so was this, um, was the the partner that you're with that you're saying that he wasn't you guys weren't racing like in the pro division then no so he was he was kind of a masters i guess he would have been in the masters section um our category but yeah he was you know he's fairly fit he's done like three cape epics but he was you know a good bit older than me and um i think he just hasn't raced in a while and wanted to like he's had this entry for two or three years waiting to do it so um, I was like, man, I'll, I'll go over and do it with you. Um, so yeah, I flew in, met the guy, got on the bikes, got situated and just like, you know, started, started racing together. And, uh, yeah, we were in the open men. So it took a few days of like, like the first couple of days, kind of a learning curve to see where he was at. Um, and like where I was at and, and, you know, we kind of quickly discovered I was a bit, a bit more like obviously fit and i think the biggest uh i i mean i wasn't there to like push him to his limits <laughs> i was just like <laughs> i want to assist you and like help us both to like have a good time and get through this as kind of efficiently as possible so by like the second or third day we realized it was kind of efficient for me basically to help push him on the steep climbs just to like save some matches and then 
I was kind of like a, a pulling a, I guess a domestique role. Like I would push him kind of on off for like 20 to 40 seconds. You're talking about pushing him like, like physically, physically pushing like, him. Like physically. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's awesome. Because like, I mean, I'm, I don't know what it is. 60, 61 kilos. And he's like 79, 80 kilos. So Dang. I would essentially help him save like some matches on all the steep climbs. So we would, I would get up behind him on like the steep bits in the middle of the stage and, and like for about 20 seconds on 40 seconds off, I would essentially like ride next to him, give him an assist and then like coast back recover and then like ride up, push him for 20 seconds. And then, um, you know, just get on the front and like any flat sections and, and just like try to shelter him a bit. So, um, and you're not it was a really shelter cool. at all. No, that's a bad <laughs> thing. <laughs> so, I mean, it was a really good learning experience. Like it took a couple of days to kind of drop the racer ego and just settle into like, uh, an experience mindset, like just there to experience it, get some good training and, and enjoy it and help him as much as I could. So after I kind of figured out how to like, let go of the racing aspect, um, yeah, it was a great, it was a great week, great experience. And, um, some of the most unreal riding, just the way they design the routes and connect towns and villages and use trail systems. And, um, it, it would be very enticing to go back now and, and race that with a, with a partner. Do so you think, the, um, the do you think do it with or a go partner? Ahead, what was that? Even, even the pros do it with a partner. Yeah. So it's, um, the Epic series races and you have to have a partner. You have to start with a partner. If something happens and they drop out, then you can race as a, like an outcast rider is what they call it. So you race individually and you can't impede the race or like get in the way of, you know, leaders and stuff or pull. So, but you have to start with a partner. What do you, what do you think about the, the partner format? feel like i have mixed mixed opinions on it yeah you would i mean if you're going for the experience i could pick a buddy that you get along with super well mm-hmm. and is decently fit because the biggest thing is like you'll probably butt heads about like if you've got a really good guy like a guy that's really fit and one that's exceptionally skilled then it's going to be hard because you're always kind of contradicting each other but yeah if you're a UCI perspective, yeah, pick pick someone that you just you're also good buddies with, of course, but like pretty similarly matched. Um, I think I think it really brings a unique uh, perspective to these races because, like, if everyone was starting solo, you would probably see an entirely different race. But sure. when you have to put two people together, it's and and you have to be like you know you can't leave them. You have to be within two minutes of each other the whole stage, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I think like in Cape Epic, we saw it with like Blevins and Matt Beers. I think he was with, it's like both insanely strong, but like Matt versus, you know, Blevins on climbs versus Matt on an open stretch and, yep. um, how they had to figure out how to work together. Yeah. I, I, I think so. I, I see how it's cool because you're seeing two racers work together and you don't typically see that in bike racing, like even in road racing, when there's a team, uh, you're seeing an individual win the stage. And here you're seeing, you know, two 
individuals win a stage, a team, and and they have to, uh, you know, if one of them has a problem, the other one has to stop and all of this. Yeah. I, I think that's cool. I, I guess from a spectator perspective, like when I've followed the Cape Epic, it seems like it seems like the teammate is always holding one of the teammates is always holding the other rider back. Like, you know, one of the teammates has a bad day and, and the, the other guy's probably strong enough to win the race, but like he can't do anything. Like he's got to, he's just got to stay there with his teammate. And it's, it's kind of a bummer all, all the way around. Um, yeah, but that's just how, that's how teams work though. Like you don't think LeBron sometimes thinks that his teammates are holding him back, man. (laughs) (laughs) Just give sure. the ball. <laughs> sure, but like I don't know. That's kind of one of the cool things about cycling is that that uh, there there's team aspects to it. But like in most bike races, one person crosses the line is is the winner. It's not like you know, for example, if it was a road race and one of your teammates was having a bad day and was getting dropped on the first climb, it's like all right, well, help us tomorrow. Like you're useless. Um, Versus like in these mountain bike races, like the Cape Epic, Swiss Epic, if your teammate's having a bad day, you have to stay with your teammate having a bad day, even if you have the legs to win. Um, yeah. And this, the, from what I noticed, the Swiss Epic was significantly different than the Cape Epic. Like, I mean, it was just like, uh, you'd have like an hour long climb followed by like a half hour descent or, you know, some rolling tight single track where, I felt like 70 to 80% of the stage was pretty individual anyway. Like you can't sure. really help each other. Sure. So that's yeah, where K- like you Cape Epic has be. a lot more drafting, I guess. Yeah. Cape was like, you can definitely work together. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think, so I think for Swiss or something like that, you know, make sure you and your partner, if you can at least are like on pretty similar pages. Um, like the biggest thing I would say is like, if you're an amateur trying to go to one of these, like skill for sure. Cause like fitness wise, you can kind of push through some of this stuff or just back off a bit. Um, Mm -hmm. but like I noticed it was interesting being like a UCI pro in the middle of like the amateur field. Yeah. So it was like a, it was a crazy experience getting to see like what those people, what they have to deal with and like what their race is like. And you know, I can tell you that the, they're losing the most time, like, on descents. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you would they would lose 10, 15 minutes on, like, a 20-minute, 30-minute descent. So, like, definitely have your skills kind of pretty honed for what you're going to be doing. Mm-hmm. So, Carson, so did, did knowing that you were going to be going into the race, like, racing with someone in the amateur field – did that kind of help make your decision a little bit easier because there wasn't as much pressure with like the preparation and stuff? Like, like you've mentioned that you, you're usually not a last minute guy and you, you like to prepare super well for races, but knowing that you weren't going to be, I'm going to say like the weakest link here, um, you know, and that you were kind of there as like more of a support role. Like did that, that help make your decision easier? Yeah, definitely. If I was going for UCI, you know, you want to, you want to kind of, capitalize on the experience and get what you can out of it like you're there for a pretty specific goal um so that yeah that took some pressure off it was kind of like i was a bit i was actually just able to like enjoy racing and enjoy riding a bike you know five plus hours every day which was which was rad um there wasn't the pressure of like 
do I carry an extra, like, like a extra pound of this or do I like stop at that aid station or that one? Or do I, you know, I didn't even, I went over with like a handful of gels cause I didn't even have nutrition like at the moment. So nice. it was just like, I'll get over there and buy some gummy bears and figure it out. Um, so it was, it was really relaxed and like was able to kind of see a different side of those events. I don't normally see like I'll do fondos or I'll do gravel races and we just, you know, blow past that stuff. And to be able to like stop at AIDS and interact with people and like, help people and it was kind of cool so yeah. and and now i learn how the the whole race works like it's a pretty crazy unit of like it's almost like a mini tour like you they give you this one bag at the very beginning and it's like whatever you want for the week has to go in this and they transfer it each day different places for you Whoa. um so it's pretty cool yeah that is cool so i i want to hear what you guys thoughts are on this but I think it would actually be a pretty cool addition to something like the Lifetime Grand Prix series to add the dimension of like a pro am race. Yeah, I completely agree. Where like everyone in the Grand Prix, you know, mandatory you come to this event and you get randomly selected and paired with an amateur and you do the oh, same wait, thing. What? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's the what same thing. Like, no, kind of the same thing. No. Yeah, um, I thought maybe, you meant they have separate pro and amateur races, and you're talking about. But here's us why: Th- this is this is how you can make it work. Because part of part of the allure of of the uh, lifetime Grand Prix events are that they're like mass start, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think Schwamigan maybe is the exception where where the pros start separately. In Sea Otter, in Sea Otter, yeah. Um, but that's like the allure of all these mass start events. And, so one, and like, one third of the events. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. And also they, they did, they actually did separate the starts at Leadville and Crusher as well. So yeah, but you're on the course at the same time. Everyone's on the, everyone's on the course. Everyone's on the course at the same time, right? Like, like the amateurs want to say that they lined up and were on the, you know, racing at the same time as the pros. You yeah. could eliminate that chaos from the equation if you did what I'm talking about, where you just had one, you know, special event, or maybe even like the, you separate them after, you know, by days or something, and like the next day there's an opportunity to like do the pro am thing. But like it, it would be a huge opportunity, so, I think, like um, for like support wise and like financial so, opportunity. So wait, 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 what what exactly are you suggesting right now? Exactly what Carson just did. We're like. He went and did this like five day or six day stage race, and he was there as the pro supporting the amateur, mm-hmm. which I bet for this other guy. I mean, I don't know, Carson, you can tell me, but I bet he was super grateful that like you stepped in and were like there for him to do that. And I'm sure he's like going back and like telling all his buddies over beers, like it was super mm-hmm. cool that he like got to ride with Carson for five days. Like, yeah, that seems way he... cooler than starting a race with you know, whoever, you know, Pace and McElvin and never seeing them again. Mm-hmm. Like what, like what's the point of that even? Like that's not even that cool. Yeah. Well, it'd be way cooler if like Payson rode with an amateur and they were like teammates for a day and had this kind of similar dynamic. Everyone always I talks about it. how, Oh, it's all about the mass start. All the amateurs want to start with the pros, right? But has anyone actually asked like an amateur if they care about that? Because I haven't. <laughs> no. uh, I mean, yeah. Like, 
I've never heard anyone an okay, amateur actually you'll, say you'll that. See it at, you'll see sure. it at a lot of these events. I mean, like, there's there's people taking selfies and, you know, making posts yeah, afterwards. Yeah, you can do like, that after or before the race, like, and you can start separately. Yeah, but you, you can't tell your homies back home that you raced against, you know, a world champion. But is anybody actually doing that? That's what I'm asking. I, I would I say think, yes. I think you'd be surprised, yeah. Yeah, I would say yes. Also, Adam, I absolutely hate your idea. <laughs> I knew I knew Dylan would hate it. Yeah, I do too, but I want to hear Carson's see... opinion because he's the one that actually did it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it would get tricky when it came to like uh when it came to like its value in the standing, like actually being a part of the series. I think it's that not, can get tricky because like it's not part of it. Yeah. It's like a showcase. Okay, so it, in, it in no way in no way whatsoever contributes to like the lifetime Grand Prix series standings. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah, like I see it being. It's the, great, the amateurs like, just get race. amplified experience, in my opinion. Cool, I think it's cool. I mean, I can see it being like a year-end bonus thing. Like, say you race yeah. Big Sugar, and then they're like, "Okay, on Sunday, like we're going to do a pro am race for fun, and everyone has to do it." Or yeah, and, do... and maybe there's maybe there's sixty slots, and there and there's a bid for each slot. So, like, you know, someone pays. 30 grand to ride with Payson, but they only paid three grand oh, to ride with crap. Dylan because they don't really care about Dylan. <laughs> it's not, it's not worth three grand. Dylan would wait for him at the last like 500 meters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, finish. Well, that's, I was going to so, say, so, so I feel like what you're describing now is like the tour, like they have the crits after the tour. That's like, it's all staged. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not exactly like that, but like these are these are not for points. It's just kind no, of no. Like these a, are just like an exhibition races, right? Sure. Yeah. I like mean, if you if you're truly going to try and cater to the amateur experience by having them intermingle with the pros, have them intermingle with the pros, not just line up and potentially like you know cause mm-hmm. chaos at the first five miles because they can hang for five miles. Like you know, actually do an event that's based around pros and ams coming together and like riding together. So here's the problem with that. If you're going to give everyone the pro experience, then nobody has the incentive to get better and get into the pro race, right? Like you're giving the experience to everyone when really only these people deserve the experience. What, what people deserve the experience? The pros, the pros deserve the pro experience, right? You're just yeah, like, oh, it's going to be a completely different experience, great. though. I mean, you know, we're not talking about, you know, that the amateur is not all of a sudden going to be elevated to the level of the pro. Like, but it's actually the, the opposite experience. The, but the pro is actually, yeah, but the pros don't do it for the experience. Like, we're not we're not racing against each other because we want to like race against, you know, some big name or whatever. Like, we're doing it because that's like the highest level of competition. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, I don't know. I mean, you see like 3,000 plus people at Grand Fondos because like they want to do George Hincapie's Grand Fondo. So like I could see it being a cool addition to the series. It may bring like more financial and public incentive to it. Um, But yeah, as long as it's just like a separate thing at the end of the year, like a fun, I don't know, you could incentivize it some different ways. It sounds miserable for both parties to me. The amateurs getting dragged along, <laughs> and the pros just no. Way see, I, I don't think so. Because, <laughs> like Carson, Carson just said, he he got to see a unique side of that race that he would normally not have seen. Like 
he got to see what the amateurs had to like kind of suffer through and like, you know, what the chaos is like in the aid stations when you're like, you know, the further back in the race, like you get to see it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know. It was just an idea. Lifetime, yeah. if you're listening, you can decide. <laughs> <laughs> um, you and know, at an actual mountain bike race. <laughs> related, so related to, related to pro versus amateur, we actually do have a related uh, listener question to that. Oh shit! I don't, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's the only listener question we have this week, but let me try to find it. Um. Okay, so this guy says, and I'm not going to say their name in case they don't want their name to be said. But anyway, so they say, I've been racing since 10th grade, but just since last year, I've been getting more serious about racing. How do you guys get sponsors and are th- uh, and are things I need to talk about if I'm trying to go more pro and do you guys hold full-time jobs now along with racing? If how, if so, how do you balance training and work? Um, and he also says, also does Scott even have any sponsorship? Seems like he just does whatever on whatever bike he has lying around. <laughs> all right so scott you can start with the last part or the first part i don't know whatever part you want um yeah i guess i have quote sponsors but i'm like on a team that has sponsors like i don't have to you know i'm not like a privateer like dylan where you have to like or quote unquote privateer where you just make your own team that you're the sole member of sure <laughs> um so yeah what was the first part yeah. of the question well how does it, he wants to he's go asking, pro he's basically asking about uh i don't know how old he is but he says he's been racing since 10th grade and he's he it sounds like he wants to go pro but he just wants to know how you go about getting sponsors yeah i mean that's hard to say without knowing what discipline he wants he, to ride yeah right. i mean this is what if I'll he, say about getting getting if he sponsors. Wants to he, do gravel, just tell him to download Instagram. <laughs> and, and well, he messaged me as on Instagram. As many words so. as possible in the caption. More captions, the better. <laughs> he, he messaged me race. on Instagram, so he's already got it downloaded. Um, oh, okay, all right. Check. <laughs> You're in. So, so this is this is what I'll say about getting sponsors. Getting sponsors is kind of like getting a girlfriend in that you if it if you're not on a team, like how Scott's you get on a, a girlfriend team. or how normal people get <laughs> <laughs> No, like how so this is what I mean. So Scott, this doesn't apply to you, and this doesn't really apply to roadies either, because roadies you just well, I guess it could apply to roadies, but like you just need to find a team, get on a team, and then the team takes care of all the sponsors, right? But if you're a privateer, so to speak, like if you're either a mountain bike racer or a gravel racer in the U.S., uh, I don't know if this guy's from the U.S., but I assume he is. Um, and this may or may not apply to whatever country you're living in. But could be Lithuania. No, Latvia, yeah. dude. We're the, <laughs> Latvia. We're the fourth uh, <laughs> highest rate or highest listened podcast podcast in Latvia. Podcast in Latvia. Yeah. yeah, killing it there. <laughs> Shout out to the Latvia fans. Uh, so this is, this is what I mean by 
by it's like getting a girlfriend. So like when you're trying to get a girlfriend, you see a girl that you're interested in. And so you have to be like, Hey, I'm, you have to like somehow reach out to her and be like, Hey, I'm interested in you. And then you have to be, see if she's like, okay, I'm interested in you. And then, then you're like, okay, this is what I have to offer. And then she's like, all right, this is what I have to offer. Like you don't have, you don't have these conversations, but that's basically what's going on. Right. And that's the same thing that happens with sponsorship. You like, you like reach out and you're like, Hey, I'm interested in you as a sponsor. And then they're like, they either completely ignore you like a ton of girls will, or they'll respond and they'll say, we're interested as well. Like, what do you need? And then, and then this is, this is what I, this is, this is what I mean is that it's like kind of like a dance, right? You can't just be like, Oh, I need like a million dollars in 30 bikes like here's my address, right? Because then they'd be like, "Screw this guy." You need a <laughs> like it's a dance in like you you don't want to tell them that you need too much, but you also don't want to tell them an, an amount that's so little that like you know they're like, "Oh, what, you know, sure, whatever." Here, have a free helmet. We don't care. Um, so like you don't want to. It's like comparable to the girlfriend because you don't want to just immediately ask her if she wants like twelve kids or something like that. Right. Or, well, no, 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 no. It's more no, that's, like that's scaring dude. them off, man. No, no, it's no. More yeah, like, exactly. It's You're more... scaring the sponsor off by asking them for a million dollars. Yeah. No, dude. Yeah. It's more like it's more like you're on the first date and you're like, hey, you know, like you've been on the date for 20 minutes and you're like, hey, like, want to come back to my place and hook up? And she's like, dude, I've known you for 20 minutes. Like, no. <laughs> you know what I'm I saying? Think the first step, though, or one of the first steps after you reach out is establish your like value to them like how because the sponsor is looking basically to like expand their reach Mm -hmm. so establish like kind of what makes you unique or what you think you can provide to them to help expand their brand so like whether that's a region or a discipline or a mix of both like hey i'm a southeast native like we have a lot of kids or whatever people down here that are interested in this type of writing. And like, I think I can be a great spokesperson for that and, you know, provide your value or, or whatever it is that you can kind of assist or bring that's unique is a big part. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, more and more uh, companies are caring less and less about your results. Yeah. For some people that may be a good thing for some people that may be a bad thing, but it's just the reality of the situation. Results yeah. are good. They're like a secondary. It's like if if at first you're approachable and able to like be a positive influence to whatever cycling community you have mm-hmm. and results are kind of like a cherry on the top. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I know like some of, some of my personal sponsors have said that, you know, they've, they've sponsored continental level pro road teams in the past and that you know they have to give these teams so much product and give them a certain amount of money and it's like if they just invest that time and money into a single person that's like really i don't know killing it on youtube for example or whatever or instagram or somebody just somebody who's like um a personality in the space of cycling they get way more return on investment um it's kind of like a long way of saying that companies care a lot about social media. Um, 
and and again it's like you know that's that's a good thing for some people and it's a bad thing for some people it's like going to back going back to like jeff kabush's article about how racers have to be influencers nowadays um you know i i i i sort of like i am an influencer and i there were a lot of things about that article that i agreed with it's like it does kind of suck that like if all you want to do is race your bike fast and you are a fast bike racer that you also have to do this second job that you may or may not even be interested in. Yeah. And, and I would say it seems like, you know, now with kind of with the rise of gravel and like grassroots events and stuff, there, there is a little bit more emphasis on like personal interactions too. It's not like just YouTube, not just Instagram. Like if you can be really involved with like your local community and like maybe if you're like a mountain biker, you're involved with like the trail building association or something like that. Like that seems to hold some weight too. Um, you know, more so than like just hiding in your room, doing Instagram or TikTok, and then like going and racing bikes. Like if you can get out in the community and, and I think like cycling is so weird as far as like sponsorship and stuff goes, like everything it seems like almost all pro athletes in cycling first seek endemic sponsorship. So like, you know, bike brands or, uh, component brands or, you know, companies that are within the industry. And there's not as much of like non-endemic sponsorship that's going on, but like, you know, L's hardware down the street, if they see that you're like a really hardworking kid and like you're really invested in the community, like they might throw you like some kind of, you know, financial sponsorship. Like, sure, they're not going to be able to give you a bike, but maybe they can help support getting you to some races, um, you know, things like that. Like if you can think a little bit outside the box, that can go a long ways too versus like just trying to reach out to, you know, Trek bikes. Like, you know, they get 1500 emails about sponsorships a day. Like, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to get in with something like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Sky, you you look over this conversation. You're just like whatever. Uh, Sign Scott, me for I'll a team and let field. me race my bike. Scott, one day you're gonna have to be a gravel pro, man. Dude, you're at least eight <laughs> years from retiring. <laughs> and by retiring you mean becoming a gravel pro? Becoming exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. When I realize I'm not good enough for what I want to do, I just do this just to yeah. make a paycheck. Just keep the keep the dream well, hopefully, alive. Hopefully, hopefully by the time you have to be a gravel pro, this podcast will have blown up, and you can just tell your sponsors that you got a really successful podcast. Yeah, maybe. Oh, gra- gravel will be dead by then, anyways. It's the beginning of the end. True. It'll be the it'll be on to the next thing. Dude, did we talk about how they canceled Dude, the live stream? Well, I mean, let's, we, we got to save of, that. This one's getting pretty long. We don't want to keep Carson waiting too yeah, long. <laughs> we already, dude, we didn't actually even talk about the thing that we wanted to talk to Carson about, which is like how gravel is destroying mountain and road <laughs> race. We can talk about that on another episode. It's like a whole, whole <laughs> separate two. conversation. Part two. Sure. We wasted way too much time talking about like feed zones again. <laughs> i know man classic gravels classic feed zone about. and arrow bars yeah i don't forever, think we've had a single controversy i i somebody <laughs> fact check me i don't think we've had a single episode where dylan hasn't talked about arrow bars at some point what about the episode that i missed did you miss an episode 
Did I? I don't know. I don't think you've missed one of these episodes. Okay. Yeah. I miss the Matchbox episodes all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think we've probably mentioned Arrow Bars every single every single episode. That's going to turn into like the the Bonk Bros drinking game. Every time Dylan says Arrow Bars, you got to take a drink. <laughs> right. Of electrolytes because <laughs> yeah. Dylan doesn't want, doesn't, doesn't want to drink. Have we had an episode where uh, we didn't talk about anything gravel related? No, of course not. <laughs> yeah, there's always something to make fun of with gravel. Oh, for sure. All right, cool. Well, let's wrap this up. Okay. Now we're dragging it on. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Carson. Hopefully, we'll have you on again. This is awesome, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been fun. All right. See ya.